The GabFest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer, and have your postal carrier pick up your packages. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get $55 in free postage when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash gabfest. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for April 11th. 2014, the Emily, would you please stop being so emotional edition? I'm David Plotz, the editor of Slate. I'm here in Slate DC with John Dickerson. John, so I had a great moment this week. Someone asked me if Slate had something really attractive to offer. And I, I said, Something what? or someone? <laughs> something. And I said, oh, The best we can do is pictures of John Dickerson in his bathing suit. The guy said, That's not good enough. That was not attractive <laughs> enough. In what context was he looking for something attractive? It was a trade. To a put on a, like a trade. beer koozie? Oh, okay. And the thing that came to mind was, was you, but not satisfying, apparently. Yeah. You know, we're one second in, and David's insulted both of us. He insulted me with the title, and he insulted you by saying your pictures aren't attractive I didn't attractive insult enough. you with the title. The title is germane to the topics we're going to talk about. That's Emily Bazelon. Who's Slate senior editor? I will insult you if you want, Emily. Which is that we had we were testing out like caricatures instead of having author photos. It would it make sense to have caricatures? And so there were some test drawings that got sent around this week. I didn't know anything about it until I saw these test drawings. The ones of me made me look like I was like 180 years old. The ones of you, <laughs> Emily, just did not capture your your Basilonianness. Were they as bad as the picture that you chose of me for <laughs> our new picture, the original one, in which I looked like? I don't know. I was from. I was a Steven Spielberg created creature. You know how every person there's a, when you caricature them, there's the thing that you caricature. Sure, the big nose, the big ears, yes. the so double with, chin. With Emily, apparently, it's your hair, and so the ha- it yeah. had like endlessly wavy. Your hair was well, like it wavy and wavy and wavy and wavy. Of all the features to caricature, the wavy hair is a winner. Right? Yeah. No. It was, I mean, as it opposed to having like as opposed to having like a like a rugby football sized schnoz. Nothing wrong with that. Or an Old Testament beard. Yes, although the Old Testament beard is transitory. So when it's gone, what do you, then what do you go with? This week, we have an actual show, too. It's going to be a fun show. We're going to talk about Jeb Bush's putative potential presidential campaign. He tested the waters this week, found them chilly, filled with sharks, jellyfish, stingrays, manta rays. Then we're going to talk about why women in politics are always so emotional, why they can't control themselves. And will they ever learn? Emily will will try to provide advice on that if she can manage to do it without tearing up. Then the parents who tried to sail across the Pacific with an infant and a toddler and then had to be rescued by the U.S. Navy, are they brave or the worst parents ever? And we'll have cocktail chowder, of course. We have just two weeks until our live show in Austin, Texas at Schultz Beer Garden. On Wednesday, April 23rd, you should come. You should come and bring a friend. It's going to be a really fun show. We're going to talk about national politics. We'll talk about Texas politics. We will team up with the Texas Tribune's Tribcast for part of the show. There are tickets, still some tickets left at slate.com slash Austin. Really, we want to see you there. Please come. The presidential campaign of Jeb Bush, the younger brother of George W. Bush, although he always seemed like the older brother, even though he was the younger brother. We can talk about that. The son of George H.W. Bush, 
that potential 2016 campaign is the latest topic of speculation in politics. Chris Christie, the the potential centrist moderate candidate for the 2016 GOP nomination, is on the rocks because of Bridgegate. And Jeb Bush has emerged as the potential favorite son of the classical Republican establishment. You see articles about Jeb Bush that quote people like Brent Scowcroft and Henry Kissinger, which is kind of funny. Bush favors the common core standards. He favors immigration reform. He says of illegal immigration that it is not a felony. It's an act of love. And he is generally very dismissive of the poisonous politics of the country. John Dickerson, is he a serious candidate if he runs? Hmm. Given those, I, I, he facts, has. There are a lot positions. of there are a lot of hurdles to the Jeb Bush candidacy, and even the things that would be in his favor, which are that he's a former governor. There's a a lot of Republicans like governors over senators. He has a good fundraising base, and he has a relationship. He comes from a key swing state, and he has a relationship or a view towards Hispanic voters that that Republicans think would be more appealing than the rest of the party, but. He hasn't campaigned since 2002 when he won his second term as a Florida governor, one problem. The campaigning has changed so much in that period of time. And then his other big three hurdles are one, that he comes from, I liked your phrase, the classical part of the Republican Party, the sort of establishment, what used to be called the Country Club Republicans, what used to be called the Northeastern Moderate Republicans. There's a debate in the party. And once you align yourself with that group, you immediately gain enemies on the other side. And then his other two problems, just quickly, one is, of course, the family name, not just because of the fact that he would have to defend his brother's foreign policy, but also because the Bushes, both of them are considered by conservatives not sufficiently fiscally conservative, his father breaking that tax pledge in 1991. And then finally, as you mentioned, not only is it common core in immigration, but on taxes, Jeb Bush last time in 2012, when all Republican candidates who were running at the time said they would not trade $1 in tax increases for $10 in spending cuts, Jeb Bush said, I'd take that deal. He has said that signing the uh, anti-tax pledge put forward by Americans for Tax uh, Reform and Grover Norquist is a horrible idea. So he's basically in a fight with the party on the three hottest red button issues of the party. Emily, given that, why is it that the Bush campaign, the Bush candidacy is being floated so seriously? And why is it that people, serious people are saying, oh, he is the, the straw that stirs the drink? Once it takes his decision about whether he's going to run, will shape how the 2016 race shapes up. Well, partly it's about the current problems of Chris Christie and the fact that there's no obvious, really strong other candidate. And partly it's a wave of nostalgia, I think, by the kind of strain of Republicans you guys were both just talking about who don't have another champion out there. And this sort of, I think, pining for a return to sanity and a more mainstream version of the Republican Party that might actually be able to win the presidency. Because if they stick with the side that is against Bush on those three big issues, they're going to lose another election unless they get super lucky and the Democratic candidate blows it or they come up with some really charismatic great guy who somehow threads the needle, right? No, wrong. You're both looking quizzically at, at each other, which isn't a good sign. I don't know. I, I was waiting for John. No, John I was going to figure here. Uh, no, no. I mean, I think well, here's the interesting thing about a Jeb Bush candidacy that I think everybody should want. <laughs> so there was a draft Jeb Bush movement. And then subsequent to that, he's spoken about running. And he's basically said that he doesn't want to run a kind of slide in between all of the current positions kind of race. He wants to run a race in which he would challenge 
big chunks of his party. Those are, A, just at the most base level, incredibly entertaining. B, they are soil tilling. I mean, they churn up a bunch of stuff and parties survive from this. I mean, Eisenhower and Taft had a massive fight. Reagan and Ford, huge fight. Reagan and Bush, massive fight. Rockefeller and Nixon. I mean, there are, of course, Bush and McCain. There are big fights that nevertheless lead to two-term Republican presidents. And they're good for a party. They air all this stuff. They have ideas get spread and pollination happens. And so that would be great for the Republican Party. But I don't know that Bush, two things. One, has the skill to pull this off since he hasn't run since 2002. And he's inc- he's very prickly. And I think he would get irritated right away with like Twitter by noon. And he has in the past tended to characterize his opposition as kind of heartless. And I think once you get into motivation judging, which is basically what happens pretty fast in politics anyway, it devolves into a like cage match. And you, you may be trying to till soil and trade ideas. And basically, it gets into like right. absolute personal vindictiveness instantly. Right. And can I add to that, which Please is do. three and four. Three is that despite being prickly and despite holding these positions which are at odds with the majority of his party, he's actually a kind of boring candidate also. He's not prickly in a Chris Christie way. I mean, Chris Christie has like the huge amount of energy and is charismatic. Jeb Bush is not charismatic. That's number three. And number four is if there's anything we've learned about presidential campaigns over the years is that the people who do well in presidential campaigns really, really want to be in them. And it's clear that Jeb Bush does not really want to be in this race. And that would show up quite quickly, I suspect. Uh, and his wife doesn't want to be right. Right. out there in the public What's eye. The deal and he has a daughter wife? who got arrested for prescription fraud. That's going to be awkward. Although his wife seems super cool to me. But there's like weird stuff about her. People don't want to talk about it, like that she's done things that maybe they don't want to get out in the public. What, what's the deal? Well, she took her wife to have this big shopping trip in Europe and then she bought, what, $19,000 worth of clothes and then she only declared $500 of it to customs. Oh. I think I think you're right, David. There is a sort of ode to Huntsman that hangs around Bush, which is that he's kind of – he's not a happy warrior. There's a little bit of sort of sniffing at the – elements of his party who have views he doesn't like. And um, it is a shame because I want this kind of candidacy on the left and the right. I mean, the left is basically totally given up. They've just like the committee to have a totally uninteresting nomination seems to have met, met. picked Hillary Clinton, and, and then they're going to all go to the Hamptons for the weekend Did, or for the rest of the two years. Does the talk about Jeb Bush mean that the mainstream Republican establishment, the classical Republican establishment has given up on Christie? Is Christie's campaign dead or can it come back? We're still. I mean, a isn't of years this out. all about the U.S. attorney investigation and whether what they find out? Because now we're in this kind of stalemate moment where the legislative investigation can't go anywhere because a judge very strangely refused to make Bridget Kelly and other people turn over these important documents. But there's no reason the U.S. attorney is going to f- stand for that. I would assume those documents will come out and the fact that it's all going to take longer is going to make it harder for Christie to recover quickly. I mean – he had a huge, as we've discussed before, he had a huge hill to climb before the George Washington Bridge problem. I mean, temperamentally, he's not suited to the kind of places that the caucuses and primaries are going to run. He's got the wrong positions on a number of things. And the pugilistic thing is might not – well, that's some sort of repeating number one again. So he had those hurdles. Now he has this hurdles. But people love a redemption story. They love a comeback story. And by people, I mean those of us in the media. You remember when McCain was supposedly dead? So I think there is a 
a set of sentences ready to be written with Chris Christie's name to just drop in about a comeback story. I think I want to believe that the bridge scandal is not one from which Christie can easily recover because it makes smoke come out of my ears. Every time I think about it, I imagine being stuck on that bridge. But can we go back to this question of whether that basically Jeb Bush, the reason he's the straw mixing the drink is that he's the only person they have right now, maybe other than Christie, who has the packaging of views that if somehow he made it through the primaries might actually make him electable in the general election. See, I don't believe that. I don't believe that the Republicans have to run a moderate to win. I think they could run someone who's somewhat more conservative but is personally appealing as long as they don't appear heartless, if they appear like a humane, reasonable person, I think they could have a pretty – A compassionate conservative, for example. Compassionate but a real conservative. They could – I think that kind of candidate could do well and could even win a presidential election. I don't think moderation – Who is that person on the national stage or do we not know the answer yet and maybe there are a governor or two that haven't been sufficiently trotted out? I don't know. There is no obvious candidate, but there is somebody who perhaps could grow into that role with a series of successful steps onto the national stage. So if who, I were like to say, Scott well, if Walker? I were to say, if I were to say Scott Walker, you'd say, oh my gosh, he's the Tim Pawlenty of this campaign. No, I wouldn't. But, okay. Oh, good. All right. Well, sorry. Uh, I'm always <laughs> at a loss. I'm always. It's always a bad idea to put words in your mouth. But some people would say that he's that, and I think I don't uh, know enough to say that. I don't think that's true. A and B. You know, a lot of people when Bill Clinton first appeared on the presidential stage thought, you've got to be kidding me. He's a like senator from a dinky southern state. And yes, he has these talents, but he also has these appetites, which are outsized. He's sloppy. You know, you can kind of grow into the campaign and into your stature in a campaign. It does, certainly doesn't happen with everybody. It, the opposite usually happens. You get a guy with stature like Rick Perry and Rick Perry and, and Fred Thompson are the two super cautionary tales for Jeb Bush because they kind of lumber into the campaign and then they just totally collapse. Can I mention one other thing, though? Yeah, and then Wait, I get I to mention to one other thing. I have to say slip of the tongue. You said Clinton was a senator. He knows. He knows. He knows. Oh, he knows yeah, sorry, governor. governor. He knows yeah, that. Sorry. We don't even need to call. Our, I, I, our I listeners my, know that our John knows that. Yeah, but I get that my yes. Clinton's so confused. So we are all moving on to the next presidential campaign because politics at the moment is dead and people hate hate Washington and they hate they don't think government can do anything and yet the interest in 2016 stories is there we see it in our readership it certainly is happening in the conversation and there is this sort of anesthetizing sense of hope that attaches to the next presidential campaign that allows people to kind of forget the current situation we're in and kind of pretend that, you know, if we have an election and there are results and there's activity that leads to a result, that suggests that there can be a world in which you have inputs that lead to outputs and that's like productive activity that gets somebody elected and that that will like – the system will be like that once they're elected. But there's just no truth in that. And I just think it's interesting this – hope that people have about elections, despite the fact that if you ask them about the situation today, they're incredibly cynical and disappointed. Despite the fact that they're deluded and you would like to immediately pop their bubble before they even have created it. I basically share, I think you're, you've described something very accurately, except if you do think about the Obama presidency, you know, there was the huge stimulus. There was health care reform. There's the scaling back from Afghanistan and Iraq. There are probably three or four other things I can't think of right now. Right. So big things happened. Right. They're not happening at this instant, but they have happened. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good point. And you also think with the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act and the kind of refurbishing both of LBJ's legacy and George Bush's 25 years, George Herbert Walker Bush, 25 years after his presidency, everything you've just said, David, is the kind of thing that could make Barack Obama, who now has more people who disapprove than approve, those numbers improve over time. But what I guess is with campaigns, the distance of history or the kind of benefit of the doubt that people give after 50 years kind of gets ejected back into the process. And for no particular yeah, good reason. the past and the future look better than the present. Big surprise. Yeah, I guess that's, Can I ask I guess one that's as simple as that. Very <laughs> quick question in closing to you, Emily, maybe. So every maybe. other element of the Republican Party has shifted quite far to the right in the past 25 years. The Bush family hasn't really. I mean, Jeb Bush and George W. Bush are more conservative than their father was, but they're not crazily more conservative than their father was. Why is that family relatively immune, relatively oceanic in its movements compared to the Republican Party as a whole? Is it just the force of a family keeps you steady? Well, they have this long-standing role. I mean, I know that George W. is in Texas, but they're really this Yankee Republican family based in the Northeast. They have a century of accomplishment of a particular kind behind them. And George W. Bush was pretty conservative. Uh, I'm not sure I really agree with that part of the thesis. Well, not relative to the. I mean, if you look at his positions not on immigration, to Ted Cruz. yeah. I mean, if you look at his position on immigration and no child left behind, he's basically got his brother's problem on federal role in education and pathway. But look, someone has to stand in this space. I mean, if if the Bushes, I guess one way to think about it is the Bushes with their must be hundreds of years of history. I just happen to only know about a century of it. If they can't continue to occupy the Yankee Republican kind of sensible conservative space, then who possibly could? Good closing sentence there. Let's hear from our first sponsor this week, which is Stamps.com. The post office is always crowded. Now it'll be even more crowded with people mailing their taxes. You may still need to get out envelopes and packages for your business. So why don't you use Stamps.com instead? Stamps.com brings all the services of the post office right to your desk. It's easy and convenient. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or any package using your own computer and printer. Then you just hand it to your mail carrier. Stamps.com even sends you a free digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you need, and the scale is yours to keep, so you'll never have to go to the post office again. Right now, if you use our promo code GABFEST, you'll get a special offer, the no-risk trial, and a $110 bonus offer, which includes that digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. So for all the details of the special offer, to sign up today, go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GabFest. That's stamps.com. Enter GabFest. Next topic, an emotional topic, women, their feelings. Can they manage to deal with the rough and tumble of politics? In the objective clinical way that's required, can they spend a little bit less time on their hair and makeup and more time on math? So a favorite Democratic campaign issue reared up on two fronts this week. First, Republicans in Congress blocked a law that would have or a bill, I guess, that would not yet a law, blocked a bill that would have allowed employees the right to share pay information with colleagues and also had employers report pay information about gender and I think racial pay disparities to the government. Meanwhile, former CIA and NSA director Michael Hayden got whacked after he 
said of Senator Dianne Feinstein that she was pushing for the public release of the Senate report on uh, CIA torture. She was pushing it for it because of her deep, deep emotional feeling about the issues. Emily, are women like Dianne Feinstein, in fact, too emotional for politics? I mean, you know from trying to deal with me every week that I burst in tears and we usually have to stop taping in the middle so I can recover myself. So the amazing thing about this You are recording right now from a fainting couch, aren't you? (laughs) Hysteria is my middle name. The reason it is so amazing that Hayden said this is that Dianne Feinstein is maybe the least emotional person on the planet. She's like a total battle act. She's from that second wave feminism model. I'm glad we're not using (laughs) expressions like that. Let's not, yeah. Are you going to say catfight next? No, come on. She is the epitome of the second wave feminist who has figured out how to succeed by acting as professional and as unemotional in every setting as she possibly can. And, you know, her career started out 20 years ago with a fight over gun legislation where someone in, the, I think the senator, actually, no, it was in California, said, oh, the gentle lady just happens to not know anything about guns. And she completely took this on. This is how she got started. So there's just this fabulous irony here. And Obviously, Hayden should be ashamed of himself, but my favorite part of the story is that it turned into a big opportunity for umbrage taking for people like Senator Lindsey Graham. Everyone was rushing to Feinstein's defense, and it turns out that right now in American politics, the way to make hay over a sexist comment like this is to point it out and then poke the commenter in the chest as many times as possible. So can I ask a question about being emotional? Yes. Not that I would know anything about that No, no, but— I mean, we all get emotional about things, and our emotion overtakes our reason. And particularly when our prerogatives are being trampled on by someone else, which is in this, you know, the CIA is trampling all over the Senate. I mean, so, uh, you, I mean, you, you, there's no way I can extricate myself from this, but I mean, like, why isn't what? You, 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 the reason you're down a, a rabbit hole here is you need to come back because you said something, your emotion overtakes your reason. That presumes right. these two things are distinct. Your emotion and your reason right, right, are right. Yeah, allied. They're connected and, and the just, one informs the other and it's sure. perfectly fine to have emotions that's that my inform point. your reason. That's, okay, that, but that's you my – should be – like as people point out, Mike, maybe Michael Hayden should feel shame. That might be a useful emotion to feel about yeah, having yeah, tortured yeah, 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 yeah. people no, or, yeah, okay, or the torture okay, okay. But people. the point is to say someone's emotional about something isn't that big of a – it Dig. shouldn't be. I actually think what's so pejorative what's, about that's it? That's my thank what's you. So David. Pejorative, what's I've so been, pejorative about that, it? That was the question I was. Is it only pejorative because you over? said it to a woman? Yes. Thank you. God, because of the way he said it, he said it. she's feeling emotional about this, and then he said this isn't an objective response she's having, as if the, her emotions had overcome her reasons, as opposed to she feels really passionate about this. Gee, when we're talking about torture, isn't that a natural way to come at this question? Right. He was using it to dismiss. Also, and also, so, and also, the fallacy that he is putting forth—that objectivity is in fact a thing—that there is an explicitly clear, individual, particular truth that we can define that everyone would only agree on if only they stopped being so emotional. Which, of course, is nonsense. Objectivity is just when people say they're being objective, they're just saying, "Shut up!" While I give you my set of facts. (laughs) Well, that that may or may not be true, but you also emotionalism. Emotion (laughs) may inform reason, but it also does. There is still room if you agree that emotion and reason are mixed to get to a good result, there still should be room for people who actually fly off the handle. You know, there are times when there is an emotional response that does overcome being able to see something in a clear-eyed way. But back to your point, why is it pejorative? 
Right. I mean, Bill Clinton, if you think about Bill Clinton, right. you, the John greatest Boehner. politician of our time. Right, John Boehner. John Boehner. But Bill Clinton was a much better politician than John Boehner. And Bill Clinton used that to such great effect throughout his career. Absolutely. But the reason why this Feinstein comment has gotten a lot of attention and helped prove what Hillary Clinton said last week about how, yes, of course, there's a double standard for the way women are treated in politics and the media is really guilty of that double standard all the time, is that you just wouldn't have this playing out for a man. John Banner can cry 50 times and no one is ever going to say, oh, his response to this deep burning problem is not objective. It's, quote, emotional. It's just not going to happen. Well, they would say it. It's just nobody would pick up on it. No, I don't think they'd say it. Not like this. Not in this dismissive, like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about and he can't be trusted, which is essentially what this was about. Right. I think every time Boehner has been cried, it's been highly praised, never questioned. I'm not exactly sure how I logically get move into the space, but so (laughs) isn't it just let your emotion flow? One problem with not allowing us to talk about the emotion in women politicians emotion as it's related to women politicians and, so, and sort of saying that's out of bounds whenever you talk about that is that we're left then with a single model for what a successful woman leader can be, which is the Margaret Thatcher, Angela Merkel, Hillary Clinton, kind of the iron lady where, where their warmth is not allowed to be part of the equation. But why is that true? It is true. Sarah Palin did not fit that model. Sarah Palin, I mean, for all her many flaws, for all her faults, she didn't play it like I'm, you know, strong and tough. I mean, she did this whole sort of mama bear kind of thing, which was very different and kind of cool. It didn't work. But she's not the only person who's doing this. We've had a lot of debates about exactly whether Sarah Palin is the only kind of mama bear alternative, and she's not. There's Debbie Wasserman Schultz. There's Kirsten Gillibrand. There's Amy Klobuchar. There are people who are out on the national stage who are acting in different guises of femininity and more power to them. The question is whether a man like Michael Hayden, who is trying to put down a woman politician, can pull out this card in a dismissive way, not whether women can display emotions and talk about their kids and create this larger, more personal model and um, image for being in politics, which men can then hopefully follow too and do. Well, I'm, I guess, less impressed by those those examples. Those are not national figures. I mean, Amy Klobuchar is a senator, relatively safe seat. Debbie Washerman Schultz is a, has a high position in her party, but she's a House member. She's elected by a very small number of people. I wonder if you can be a legitimate presidential or vice presidential campaign and outside of the Iron Lady mode. Well, I don't think we, we've seen that tested. Except for Sarah Palin. I mean, we have an moment. She wasn't successful, but she ran and she got a lot of attention. And in a lot of ways, she contributed by widening the images. You know, maybe I'm putting too much stock in this, but with Gillenbrand, there was this big front page New York Times profile of her where she chose to be photographed with her kids in her office. That seems to me like it's some kind of movement. I mean, this is takes a while. It's slow. And it's not like we get there all at once. But I don't think it's as monolithic as it used to be or as you're making it out to be. And your view is also that it will be – we will get to a day where it's fine to talk about the different emotions that politicians of all stripes are well, are displaying. We just aren't there now for certain kinds of men talking about in particular certain kinds of women. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think the other problem we have is the structural one, which is, I mean, Nancy Pelosi is another example of this, too. She's got five kids and she talks about that. And I don't think she is only in the kind of iron lady mode all the time. And she's a national figure. But won't we get to this better place when 
people call out, as I think you partially did, all the silly umbrage taking that's going on over this. I mean, this is a battle axe, frankly, is a far, far, far worse than emotional. I mean, battle axe <laughs> is meant to describe an old lady with strong opinions who's just kind of unpleasant. Unpleasant. Why? Really? Because is it she's got strong opinions. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't think I really realized that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a good deal. That's a good deal more. I mean, if you called him a, a man. That's why emo- there was an audible intake of breath from our end when you said that. If you. Well, and, I was and kind by of the enjoying way, it because you guys were so shocked, but I didn't realize that I was probably just being terribly sexist in that moment myself. I thought you could say that about a guy too you no. cannot say it about a you guy unless he's a viking warrior I uh, don't think you what can. about harpy and shrill let's make a long list of these words but emotional seems to me to be a perfectly valid way to dismiss a man but it might have a tinge of you know saying like you know tucking your skirt or something i mean although i don't see it that way so i guess my point is isn't the way we get to this better place when everybody stops freaking out about using the word emotional and we just yeah, sort but of don't don't people stop freaking out when it's not used in, as a double standard i think you can use it just as well with a man and conveys the same thing but maybe i you know live in a funny world i think that's a little bit of wishful thinking though i do hear you that the umbrage taking can feel very opportunistic can we briefly touch on the fight over the gender wage gap and the federal... You mean the actual policy issue at stake here? Well, maybe not the policy issue at stake. That seems too much. So the Republicans have blocked this law, which would have allowed more transparency in pay. Why bother to block it? Why not just let this go through 100 to nothing, John? Why, why make a big deal out of it? It seems like we're going to a election, the Republicans' historic problem over the past three or four cycles has been saying things, doing things about women that get them in trouble. Why give Democrats an opportunity on something that is basically trivia, being the law being proposed having been a quite small law? I mean, there is a risk to it. I think where the risk is on something like this comes if Democrats continue to push on it and then some Republican member says uh, or somebody running says something really stupid that makes a um, a bigger assault or offends women sort of at their core. Now it's, you know, you can make a couple of claims. One, it's addressed at the state level and that's where Republicans would prefer it to be addressed. You can talk about the distinction between the 77% women make 77% of men if you count it at annual wages, but 82% if you count it at hourly wages. That turns out that's not that far from the disparity within the actual White House. And what then you get into a policy conversation about the reason you have the disparities is because of the choices women make, the kinds of jobs they make, and therefore that the legislation will do more harm than good. You can get into a legitimate policy conversation and your base, because it's an off-year election, you don't have a lot of swing voting women that you would have in a presidential year. Your base kind of would find it a greater break with Republican views to support this than you would pick up voters by voting for one thing and not campaigning right. on it constantly. I guess that's – I mean that's, what's interesting is I actually think the Republicans are basically right on the issue. I mean this particular Because law. you don't believe in wage transparency. No, no. I, so, no, no I kind of – no, no. No, the wage transparency part I'm kind of I, – I understand. It's more like the wage gap as an issue seems to me that the Democrats use – get much more political mileage out of it than they deserve – that it's really it's as Why? my own because wife does has sex written. Sex discrimination is over. No, not because sex discrimination is over. Because when you start to break down the source of the gap, it is not because there's a kind of grotesque discrimination in how people are paid. It's sort of choice of profession. It's the fact that 
And this is a big issue that women end up taking much more time and, and moving off of their career for longer for children. And but why don't we need to, to talk back. about all of that? We do I mean, need to talk about that, but that's not a wage. I don't think it's a wage gap issue. I think that's a adequate child care issue. It's a non-stigmatizing people returning to the workforce issue. I don't think it is. It seems to me perfectly reasonable if you're a boss and you are faced with candidates, one of whom has been out of the workforce for four years and has skills deteriorated to possibly pay her less than an equivalent candidate who hasn't been. That seems to me like totally legit. I agree that sometimes this conversation gets simplified and you can't expect that boss in that moment necessarily to make up for all these factors. But I also think that pretending that discrimination is over and not a factor is wrong and lame and unhelpful and that the Democrats are doing a good thing by getting people to focus on this, even if the actual disparity in the wage gap is smaller if you were trying to start comparing apples to apples. And even if also we need to think about these larger structural contributing factors as well. You know, one of the reasons Democrats are working so hard on this issue, of course, is to try to find a new one to talk about and to box Republicans in and get away from talking about the Affordable Care Act. As far as women and their economic conditions go, though, you can imagine and I'm, I'm not enough of an economist to, to make this case, but two-thirds of the people who'd be affected by an increase in the women, minimum wage would be women. So that the actually better policy argument to have if you're a woman in this campaign, I think, is the minimum wage. But it presents less opportunities for a kind of outrageous moment where women can say, wait a minute, you're talking about me even if I'm not working. You know, So there's a greater a gender chance of explosion of here. there, John. I think that may even be true. There is also a sense a lot of women have that there are small ways in which somewhere along the line they get a little bit screwed. And it's not that they don't recognize that maybe they took more time out, you know, on maternity leave than their husband did on paternity leave. But it's also that's not the whole thing. And over the course of your career, I think most women, I mean, it's certainly true for me, have some moment where they think, huh. Was that there? Is this because I'm not a good negotiator or did I sort of miss some opportunity here that a guy would have gotten? And in this particular way, there are just lots of conversations about that. I don't disagree with that. And Emily, I just want to say in closing, I really admire the way you've gotten through the whole discussion just in using a calm, objective tone of voice. Yeah. Do I get a raise now? Is my pay equitable? Should we all discuss our salaries out loud? Hmm. I think we should do that. (laughs) I really think we should do that. Oh, we had some technical problems. I'm sorry. (laughs) We just missed that whole interesting discussion of our salaries. Darn it. We didn't catch it on tape. (laughs) The GabFest is also sponsored this week Mm -hmm. by Audible.com. Audible is the leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with more than 150,000 titles. New books, old books, bestsellers, classics, cult favorites. And you can listen on almost any device, including whatever device you are listening to us on. Right now, we have been collecting listener recommendations for great books that you are hearing on Audible. And I think we've got a good one this week. Emily, do you have it? I do. It comes from D.J. Ritt, and it's for the book Galveston by the writer Nick Pizzolatto, who is a writer for the TV show True Detective. And Jay says this book is fun and dark in a James Lee Burkish swamp noir kind of way, and it is available on Audible. Right. Pizzolatto is even – that he's not just a writer for True Detective. He created it, and it's very – I think Galveston is very much in that milieu, that dark and smoky and industrial and creepy 
milieu. I've heard very good things about that book. He has an incredible ear, as anyone who saw that show knows. The dialogue on that show was amazing. So I, if the dialogue is as good in this novel, I'm sure it would be lovely to hear read aloud. So anyway, you can get Galveston or any other free book when you sign up for Audible today through our special offer. Use our promo code, use our promo code, excuse me, audiblepodcast.com slash gabfest. You can also get the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest for free, audiblepodcast.com slash gabfest. Charlotte and Eric Kaufman and their two children, a one-year-old and a three-year-old, were rescued this week from the dangerous waters of the Pacific Ocean, 900 miles off the coast of Mexico, by the Coast Guard, the Navy, and I think the California Air National Guard after they became unable to sail their 36-foot sailboat. They were on a trans-Pacific journey from Mexico to New Zealand. They were blogging about it, and their rescue prompted an outpouring of rage and also support. So let us now fight about it. John Dickerson, these are like the worst parents ever, right? Uh, not what you mean from a, yeah, from a, from a parenting standpoint. Someone better take that point of view. You take that point of view. I thought David was anti-parents. Let's discuss this. Okay, so they take a one-year-old and a three-year-old on a trans-Pacific journey on a 36-foot sailboat. It's totally fine. Why is it totally fine? Let's because why not? We've seen the Robert Redford movie All Is Lost. It's it's rough out there on yeah. the sea. I know it's rough out there, but they can choose to, you know, that's the way they're like living their life. I think the more troublesome question is like, okay, they choose to do that. They put themselves in peril. They put their families in peril. Do they have to then get rescued? Well, they do have to get rescued. Well, or do they have to ask, pay for their we'll talk, pay let's, for let's, the rescue? I want to get to that discussion yeah. in a minute. Let's okay. talk, let's, I want to hear a, a strong justification. I think probably, unfortunately, we are all roughly in the same position on these guys. Why is it okay to take a one-year-old and a three-year-old? The one-year-old, I think we can agree, having all had one-year-old. One-year-old is not going to remember this trip. One-year-old cannot contribute to this trip. That, that's, yeah, it's that's not the about the one-year-old getting a lot out of the trip or, honestly, really the three-year-old. The three-year-old won't it's remember about the it family either. ethos and who you are as a family and whether if being a family is being a boat, seafaring, go-around-the-world family, you have to put that on hold until your kids are old enough what, to enjoy it because then the risk is worth it? Because certainly it's not any safer for a four-year-old, a seven-year-old, or a nine-year-old to be out there, really. Certainly well, the four-year-old is just point, as much a risk. They become able to fend for themselves slightly better. They're able to get themselves out of danger. They're not completely – one of the things that seems to have happened on this boat, Emily, was that they, the mother had to spend her time taking care of the one-year-old and the three-year-old and thus was not able to help sail the boat. Okay, that's fine. I remember those days – in a kind of sleep-deprived, manic state, and I wouldn't have been helpful either. God, I cannot imagine we would have survived on any boat for like 10 seconds. But if you have two kids, those kids have to be years older than these kids were to really change that equation. And this is about whether we think this particular subculture is essentially an abusive one, if whether these parents are making a risk calculation that is so off that they shouldn't be able to live their lives freely. I don't think any of us are, you know, nanny state enough to go for that, even if none of us would make this particular choice. Right. Although there's space between between having a life where you are cruising on your sailboat and with your children on a boat traveling around the world and crossing the entire Pacific Ocean yeah. in a 36-foot boat. Yeah, that's really That's true. a very ambitious trip. It's right. not like I was sailing the Gulf of that. California where you're always 12 
miles or less from the from, right from or land. like sailing around islands that are fairly close together. I think that's right. And you, yeah. the tr- and the ambitiousness of the trip is you're making a basically a claim on other people's time and money because it's such a risk. The chances you're going to end up costing a lot of money, costing a lot of like peril, angst, stress, and problems when you have to come get rescued. It seems like you're leaning on other people when you make a choice to to take this kind of trip. So I always have this instinct that people should pay for their rescues. Like I hear about people getting stuck in the mountains and I have this grumbly feeling, oh my God, some poor firefighter could have died and at least the economic cost should be borne by this other person. Is that about retribution or is that about deterrence? Am I imagining that because I want other people not to take those risks or am I just like pissed in the moment? And should we actually not give in to that retributive emotion, my emotion driving my reason? You think the Kaufman should have paid for the rescue? I do, basically. Although then I start feeling like it's kind of punitive. But I I do not. I think there should be some process for figuring out that like so if you're – you know, climbing or camping or hiking in certain places and not doing something that's excessively dangerous, then, okay, you know, you shouldn't have to pay for your rescue. But when you're doing something that's so out there, I think you should have to pay for it and somebody can figure out where that line is. Well, No, we're going to have to spend a lot of money figuring out which I know. is which. I know. <laughs> I, I guess I don't think that. I think that one of the privileges of living in a free, prosperous society is that we have decided that we're going to spend resources to guard the seas, to have parks that people can range in, to have police and fire departments that, that are at our beck and call and ambulance service. If we had an epidemic of people taking grotesque risks, risks on the sea and forcing the California Air National Guard and the U.S. Navy to devote most of their time to rescuing these people, then obviously we would need a very strong deterrent, and that deterrent might be pay or it might be not rescuing people. But in a world where we, we've basically said, we've told people that this is something we do, that we protect the ocean and we rescue boats when we can, I think it's a little bit strange to start making lots of moral judgments. These people – What's well, not these, a moral I judgment. Don't think, I think what they did was risky as parents – but it wasn't wildly risky for sailing. No, no, no. They, they were on a very placid route across the Pacific. You just said thirty-six foot trip cross Pacific. Right. I, oh. I'm arguing it both ways. I think for to have a one-year-old and a <laughs> three-year-old tacky. on that boat, yes, <laughs> to have a one-year-old and a three-year-old on a thirty-six foot boat that you're crossing the Pacific with, it's a pretty risky thing to do. But but uh, yeah, for sailing, but sailing position. period across the Pacific, if you're going to do it, and we we allow that people are going to do it. Doing it in the on the place they did with the preparations they did with the equipment they did seems to me like they they took reasonable precautions so, and that we should we should therefore not be too punish them too much. They've but, already been massively shamed and they already had their boat sunk. So, but we weren't right. saying we weren't making a moral claim. We were all agreeing that basically that, that it's not a moral case. A moral case. If the idea and I like your point, which is that it's awesome that we have places where you can challenge and be free and take risks for all of the great benefits and wonders of things. But being truly free is also accepting the consequences of what you do. So that's dealing with the consequence that you were free and you ranged and we're going to come rescue you. We've got a system set up so we can come rescue you. But the consequence is you're going to you're going to be on the hook for it. But at what point would they have been would you have said oh they've Inside taken enough the precaution. Yeah, I don't know. I mean I don't know, were the not. people when maybe, they when the perfect storm, you know, there are all these boats out when that storm that was the perfect storm that Sebastian Younger wrote about right. and the US 
sent a lot of people out to rescue them. I can't remember any of the rescuers died. But should we have charged those people? Should they have? No, you have to be inland. I mean, right. You know. And do you not charge them if they die, but you do if they survive? It seems like that's 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 got that, that's that seems not right. You know, I also think there's a way in which this couple is getting so much criticism because the fact that they were blogging and on Facebook so much makes them seem kind of exhibitionist. And so it's not just the fact that they had to be bailed out. It's that we can see all these pictures of them. And partly, I think we're all just a little, well, maybe this is oversimplifying, but some of it is like a current of envy, right? That they are having this free spirited lark and the rest of us are slaving away at our desks. It's a deep eddy of of envy. But is it really? Really? I, I know in my yeah, in my really? like the quotidian tedium of my life, yeah. Absolutely. It's huh. envy. I can't rise above that. I Much feel like I, it, I have a joy riding re- response to it, which is like you're endangering you're hassling everybody else by your like joy riding out there and you should have taken that into but account. But didn't you read I've, that wonderful piece that Slate ran by another couple that have raised their child on a boat it sounded fantastic oh yeah no and they have like, not had to be rescued but it right. sounded amazing and it, and their daughter was so beautiful and lovely oh i i think it's awesome i just think you're you've got to like take maybe a few more precautions or something we what were, were you on saying, vacation Emily? somewhere once and we met a family like this with a little boy who was playing with my boys and i was totally envious and felt like oh my god this kid is having this amazing life and that couple happened to one of them was a doctor so that made it seem less risky and it just seemed really i mean i'm so so i get seasick at the drop of adam the last person who would and i have no technical know-how it's like a disaster from one to ten for me and yet it seems kind of just wonderful right i agree and i i, I don't get seasick but man i hate the water but if only you could go like sail, do that, but just on land, that would be perfect. I don't get the people who are into the sea. The sea, terrible. The sea is the worst. We I could just do a feel whole like episode so about the man. sea. I feel like I have such a lack of imagination or such a, well, I mean, I don't know. I just don't. Uh, That's I, not your adventure. You're a mountains and lake kind of person. Yeah. I am too. Yeah, the sea filled true. with pandas is my idea of like a true nightmare. <laughs> Are you interested in going to space, though? That's what my kids fantasize about. Space they yes. get to go to like space. the sea. It's like Except the sea. without so much water. Yeah, but it's similar. So Richard like Branson is going to, for $200,000, right, Virgin Galactic, he'll send you up into space. Uh, yeah. Would you do that, Emily? No, but my children think that it sounds great, and they also feel like it's going to be normal by the time they grow up. They have a whole idea about this. That is not true, I would be completely ill the entire time. That's just the way it is. The, the lesson is Emily is is ill. She's barely you're barely keeping together just <laughs> on the spinning globe. And Ill. Okay, let's move on to chatter. But before we do, I have an important announcement, important self serving announcement. The Slate Gab Fests have been nominated for a 2014 Webby Award in the podcasting category, and we're up against some big players, and we need your help. You can vote for us in the People's Voice content, Co- not content, the People's Voice contest. <laughs> And we're going to need all of you if we're going to beat NPR and the BBC, which we're up against. We have made it very simple for you. We have an easy-to-remember web address that takes you right to the voting page at slate.com slash webby, W-E-B-B-Y, slate.com slash webby. Pause the podcast right now. Visit slate.com slash webby. Vote for us. Then listen to the rest of the show with a clear conscience. Slate.com slash webby. Okay. Let's go to chatter. John Dickerson, what do you have to chatter about this week? 
So I've been thinking a lot about the election of 1908. I mean, who doesn't at this time of year when flowers are in bloom and there's a sense of renewal? No, actually, I was looking at the election of 1908 because I was looking at what election was there in which the party nominee basically waltzed into the position, which is what's happening so far for Hillary Clinton. You have to go back to 1908 to find one in which you have candidates who basically were not really opposed or had nominal opposition. And and in that case, you had both William Jennings Bryan and uh, William Howard Taft, who were the candidates. But what I discovered in 1908 is that we can blame that election for two things that people hate about modern politics. One is the presidential debate. And the second is the soundbite. Because in 1908, in this election, the phonograph had just kind of come into popular use. It had been made affordable. And this was the first campaign in which there were 22 Edison wax cylinders of the two candidates produced. And they had to speak in under two minutes. They actually had to yell into this like recording horn, which is It's like how we do the show. Yeah, exactly. And and what's notable about this is 1908 is the first campaign in which you had both candidates actually campaigning. Before, it was seen as beneath the office to actually campaign for it. William Jennings Bryan broke that taboo previously, but this is the first one in which both of them— Perhaps you should go back to that. Well, exactly, right? I mean, it would be wonderful. But they had to yell into the recording horn for two minutes. William Jennings Bryan couldn't say hello in under two minutes, and and Taft had trouble too. Anyway, then what happened was they took these phonographs, and they went throughout the land, and at certain places, they would take mannequins of each of them, of Bryan and Taft— and sort of start the record for Brian. People would listen to that. And then they would start the record for Taft. And this would be like a debate. And people were uh, like amazed that you could hear the recorded voice of these two men. And the other thing that amused me about this is that um, one of the 22 recordings, there were 12 from Taft, I think, and 10 from Brian. One of Brian's was on immortality, you know, that, that old campaign saw, right? And in the immortality speech he gave, he, he this, is, this is a sentence from it, and I just want all politicians to have to talk like this again. If the father deigns to touch with divine power the cold and pulseless heart of the buried acorn and to make it burst forth from its prison walls, will he leave neglected in the earth the soul of man made in the image of his creator? This was his argument for why there is immortality. So there is actually a CD of these 22. Um, we ought to, we ought to post some of this. Yeah, Did you we listen should. To it? Did you listen I've to it? listened to them. Two things strike you. One, it lacks the kind of punch. It's all very generic. Uh-huh. And secondly, they have very thin, reedy voices, which is even Taft. Uh, you could Taft's yes, you man. imagine Taft, this fellow who could not yeah. get out of a bathtub, or so the legend goes, would have this booming voice, right? The governor of the Philippines, right. the Secretary of War, this no, he has this kind of it's just their thin, small little voices. And same with William John Bryan, who's this great Do orator. Again, John Dickerson. No. <laughs> No, they have these these just We're small, tiny. I know exactly. <laughs> mine, mine, oh mine. Um, anyway, I mean, we should we'll, we'll play maybe the audio in some other context, but it um, turns out it's a fascinating race in 1908. Um, so that's my chatter. Emily, follow that chatter. Okay, I have to follow up on this little hole that David's been needling me about, which is why is dance protected by the First Amendment? This came out of our discussion last week. I failed to really answer it. It turns out, at least in my cursory research, the Supreme Court has never adequately or really at all discussed this question. They just basically had one holding in the late 60s where they said theatrical performance was protected, and then they just kind of shoehorned dance in there. However... 
Never fear. Luckily, in the case about nude dancing that we talked about last week and that um, Elevator Repair Service did the show Arguendo we talked about, in that case, the lower court had an amazing discussion about dance. And Richard Posner and Frank Easterbrook have a fight about it. And when Posner and Easterbrook are fighting, it's basically like this is as good as appellate judging gets. And here's the fight. So Posner says, yes, dance is protected. And the reason is it's a form of expression not driven by ideas but driven by emotion. And emotion is part of the marketplace of expression that should be protected. But then Posner has to basically deal with whether there's any kind of limit on this. And essentially he gets to the idea that there's no way to distinguish high art from low, that once you want to protect the ballet and high visual art, you also have to protect new dancing. And what he says is the reason we think that art is an intellectual medium and therefore has nothing important in common with striptease is that most of us obtain no enjoyment from art. I kind of love that. And then there's this other great quote where he's talking about why he thinks judges want to exclude striptease dancing from the protection of the First Amendment. He says, it's the feeling that the proposition, the First Amendment forbids the state of Indiana to require striptease dancers to cover their nipples, is ridiculous. It strikes judges as ridiculous, in part because most of us aren't either middle-aged or elderly men, in part because we tend to be snooty about popular culture, and then, to skip a little here, in part because, like all lawyers, we are formalists who believe deep down that the words and statutes and the Constitution mean what they say and a striptease is not a speech. So I think that's basically your position. But what Posner I think also shows is that if you care about protecting art and ballet and the kind of storytelling that should be part of expression and, and even a marketplace of ideas, then you have to get to strip teasing as well. And Easterbrook just totally throws this out. He says that barroom displays, that's his word for new dancing, is to ballet as white noise is to music. Well, I don't so agree with Easterbrook, but I don't know that you have – you seem to have just asserted – or allowed Posner to assert that this is a category of thing that that should be protected, that it's a form of storytelling that should be protected. And you, again, said it was a, a form of expression. But as I you said, it's not— You don't think dance is a form of expression I at all? I think it's a form of expression, but we you haven't—I still am stuck on this distinction between expression and speech. Like what the Constitution— seems to want to protect is the freedom of speech and the freedom of the press. Well, I think I did address that by pointing out that you're defining speech in this literal way, just like the lawyers who Posner is trying to channel, and that if we can agree that dance tries to express emotion and convey emotion and and imbue emotion the way music does when it's nonverbal, then we have to recognize that there's some kind of umbrella here that could count for speech. If you think of speech as really being about an exchange of expression and ideas can be driven by emotion as well as purely intellectual. Yeah, but I guess thinking. I think when you take that argument to its extreme, as you First Amendment types will, everything is therefore a form of expression. So the way that Posner and Easterbrook deal, join that argument is they start talking about bullfighting and why bullfighting isn't protected because it's all about moving around and expressing something. And Posner says basically we don't protect bullfighting because there's cruelty to animals. And Easterbrook says that's nonsense. We don't protect bullfighting because it is so far away from speech. It is just completely not speech. Anyway, we'll post a link. It's a great argument. You will completely feel vindicated by the Easterbrookian part of it.
It doesn't sound like I would. All right, my chatter. This is the 20th anniversary, of course, of the genocide in Rwanda. There's been lots of fascinating and, and terrible reminiscences of of that horrible, horrible period. There was a really interesting diversion, which was a story in the Washingtonian Magazine about the last king of Rwanda, who's named Kigeli, Kigeli V, and the Washingtonian Magazine tracked him down. He's living in poverty in a northern Virginia suburb. He's seven feet two inches tall. He's 78 years old. He has an aide-de-camp who supports him, who's a mattress salesman at Sears, and he also um, supports himself by selling knighthoods, Rwandan knighthoods. He reigned very briefly in 1959 as a a young man, as a 22-year-old, I think, and then was very quickly deposed. He reigned for less than a year, was deposed and exiled. He hasn't been back to Rwanda. He lives in Section 8 housing, and it's just a it's a it's a strange and weird story about this monarch who was a monarch kind of as part of a colonial period and end of a colonial period where where it was a, a country that didn't quite know what to do with itself, didn't know how to govern itself. And this monarch was one of the solutions they came up with, which didn't work. And now he he's had 50 years of wayward, wandering, sad life. And he's also seven feet, two inches tall, which makes it all the stranger. So I commend this story in Washingtonian. So let's do the credits. I was just going to do a straight up normal credits, but then I remembered it was Passover. So sorry. Matzo credits. Uh, Had he created Slate.com slash GabFest, but not filled it with links to what we talked about today, Dianu. Had he filled it with links to what we talked about today, but not created our Twitter feed at Slate GabFest, Dianu. Had he created our Twitter feed at Slate GabFest, but not allowed email to GabFest at Slate.com, Dianu. Had he activated the email address, but not created the iTunes store, Dianu. Had he created the iTunes store, but not allowed you to search for Slate Political Gabfest in it, Dianu. Had he allowed you to search for Slate Political Gabfest in the iTunes store, but not allowed you to subscribe to the podcast, Dianu. Had he allowed you to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, but not allowed you to leave a comment or rating while you were there, Dianu. Had he allowed you to leave a comment or rating, but not brought us Mike Volo to produce the show, Dianu. Had he brought us Mike Volo, but not given unto us an intern, Rebecca Cohen, Dianu. Had he given us an intern, but not created an executive producer in his own image, Andy Bowers, Dianu, for John Dickerson, whose favorite plague was probably frogs, and Emily Bazelon, whose favorite plague was probably hail or cattle disease. I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Oh, so you're still listening. Thank you. If you are, this is a secret message for you. Very soon, Slate is going to launch a new membership program called Slate Plus. We're currently in the final stages of testing our new membership site. And GabFest fans have a chance to get in on the ground floor of this project. To put it another way, we need some brave GabFest fans to sign up as beta testers. Beta testing is what the Obamacare site did not do, but we're doing it. So why should you sign up as a beta tester for Slate Plus? We're really excited about some of the podcasting benefits that we're including in Slate Plus membership. We're doing an extra members-only mini-segment at the end of each week's show. Members also get ad-free versions of our most popular Slate podcasts, including this one and the Culture Gab Fest, and Hang Up and Listen. On our Facebook page last fall, when we asked what benefits we should include in a membership program, these are the exact benefits that many of you suggested, an ad-free version of the podcast and extra segments. So please sign up. You'll hear much more about Slate Plus soon, but if you want to sign up early and help us out by being a beta tester, just a just a guinea pig, as we like to say, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. That's all letters. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus, and you can try Slate Plus for free for the first two weeks. We'd really appreciate it.